Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Billington, and I'm joined as always by the sanity to my madness, Ellie Mae Taylor. And we've made the executive decision just to not have Timo this week. Um, Ellie Mae, how are you? I'm good, thank you. If I'm the sane one in this, then there's quite a problem in this world, isn't there? Well, <laughs> it, it's me. Uh, <laughs> we measure sanity respective to what we're sort of working with. Um, Yes, there's yeah, there's just the two of us this week. We're not entirely certain where Timo is. Possibly incarcerated, possibly international espionage, possibly something else entirely. Um, we don't know. We're not sure if we want to know. We'll just find out in due course, I suppose. Um, however, we are back, of course, to review all the action from this weekend's Miami Grand Prix, as well as take a look at some of the news that's come out from the world of Formula One in the past week. With that in mind, we'll launch straight into what the hell has happened. And the only real news bit that I've got, at least on my sort of notebook, is... Um, Mazepin has begun a high court bid to overturn sanctions against him and or so as a Russian athlete, which is, I think, interesting. I think I know he's tried this off in a, a few other countries with limited success. Um, he's now trying it against British courts, which is going to be interesting. Um, I think it'll be the exact same outcome, won't it? Just no. Yeah, it'll probably be a flat no. And equally, he's really got to ask the question, does anyone want him back in a major sport? no <laughs> so what's he fighting for i don't know he did that he did to parry dakar but that was with like a camas factory team camas of course being a russian team because they make camas trucks so that wasn't too tricky for him to get into um but and a bit of rallying but it's not been high key stuff and i can't see him appearing in formula one or indycar WEC, imsa anything along those lines not for a good long while especially if he does at all it'll be some time from now and a very different thing to single series yeah i just i can't see who would pick him and even if we had him back for entertainment purposes to you know liven up a race we've got other drivers that we can have for that yeah charlotte claire's stepped up to that mantle these days so <laughs> yeah um yeah, speaking of Charles Leclerc livening up on-track sessions, we'll sort of jump into our race review where we saw a jumbled-up qualifying caused by Charles Leclerc spinning in Q3, which um, meant that Max Verstappen was unable to put in a representative time on track that was a track that was fast improving as well. We had um, temperatures changing through the day, which meant the track was essentially rubbering in very fast. And yeah, he made a mistake in his early Q3 run and that meant that his time that he had set wasn't wholly representative. He was lining up to go for another sort of fast flyer when Charles Leclerc dropped it, going through the sort of turn two, three, four bit, I think it is, wasn't it? And there's a drain on the inside. And it seems that he sort of had taken a very tight line, clipped that, and it disrupted the floor and the airflow. And he just lost it at that point. It was quite a high speed thing. And he managed to lose a lot of the momentum by the time he hit the barrier. But even when he did, it was sort of diffuser and rear wing gone so this begs the question it was brought up by a lot of different media outlets across the weekend is he a win it or bin it driver or is he fast becoming a win it or bin it driver Charles Leclerc in his sort of desperation to actually try and achieve something with a bit of an underrated Ferrari I love the fact that he wants to push the limit of the car and you know extract everything he can out of it but it was kind of like how Martin Brundle was saying that I think with definitely with the Ferrari that they've got currently and 
it's then later on in the race he was saying how unpredictable it was. I think with the unpredictability he's got in that Ferrari, he needs to rein it down a bit because, well, he was on for a good qualifying anyway. I think, yeah, I mean, was he going, I think he might have been going through a little bit later, was it turns four or five, because then at six then goes off, you got six, seven and eight, which has that huge runoff area. Mm. I think it might have been that went that bit, and obviously those bits are all sequenced. You get one corner wrong, that's it, you get the rest of them wrong. And I remember watching it with my hands in front of my face, because I saw him, I think, go wide at four, saw him carry on pushing at five and then just kind of binned it into six and I thought I, I already saw it coming and it's almost like you just like Max did earlier in the lap he saw that he was going too wide and his lap was compromised and so backed out Charles needed to do the same because it ultimately led him crashing they were trying the new floor weren't they as well I think they had a new floor in this weekend yeah I didn't get to catch much of the sort of preamble to the weekend but I think for I definitely had some sort of floor upgrade in and yeah it just he, his ability to let go of a lap time when it's not clearly not there is something that's fast becoming his sort of undoing and it, it's interesting to see how it's sort of becoming I don't want to say a more common thing but we certainly saw it in Azerbaijan we've seen it before other circuits where he's been really driving hard to get a lap time and just oversteps the boundary in a car that doesn't have that sort of grey area to its sort of top-end performance in the way that the Red Bull sort of slowly seems to lose traction and slides quite nicely, or the Mercedes does it a little bit as well. It just goes into a bit of a sort of oversteer and you just sort of catch it and away you go. We've seen George and Lewis just a little dab of opposite lock. It looks a bit snappy, but you can catch it. The Ferrari is a car that's very much on a knife edge. And as soon as you go beyond that, it goes because even halfway through the spin, it looks like he's caught it. He sort of stabilizes it halfway through and the car then goes again on him as he's in the runoff area heading towards the wall. It looks like he's sort of got some sort of control at that point in time. And then it goes once more, which says that while Ferrari built a fairly decent car and a car that can produce the lap time that they need to get it on pole, as we saw in Baku twice, it is also a car that as soon as you take it to that 101%, it will probably not end well because you're right on that very sort of precipice of performance. And it doesn't suit Charles' driving style where he's he's not a driver that demands lap time from his car. He's a driver that, and he's certainly not a driver that really goes head to head. We saw this later on in the race where he doesn't tend to go sort of aggressive sort of offense defense he's very very calm and collected about the way he goes about attacking on track and i think that's where we often don't see these charles leclerc poles and when we do they come out of nowhere and they're a surprise and when they don't it's because he's pushed too far beyond his limit or the cars he's he's it's not his driving style to be achieving that sort of element of a grand prix weekend He's much better starting from second on the grid and having a very tactical race to get into track position. And I think this qualifying really highlighted that is the fact that he will push too far. And then we later saw the second half of his driving style in the race against Kevin Magnussen, interestingly, 
where he would sort of was trying overtakes in loads of different places and Kevin was getting back until he found once then essentially sort of narrowed it down to the one overtaking spot where he knew how to make it pass but also how to later also defend and keep a bit of momentum a bit of electricity to help retain that spot it's it was an interesting weekend to learn how Charles Leclerc drives I think there's certainly interesting bits to take from this weekend even if it was a bit of a dull race at points you can really sort of again it's a, a connoisseur's grand prix you can pull it apart and find these interesting things and yeah he he did his usual thing of stirring up qualifying though which did leave us with a very interesting grid um Perez took pole, Alonso second, Sainz third. We had an all-Spanish top three, or Spanish-speaking top three, rather. Magnussen secured fourth, again, proving that just getting out there, getting a good lap in early, can pay dividends, especially on tracks that have a tendency to bite. Uh, Gasly, a decent fifth place, and Russell, a seemingly out-of-place sixth, a little far up, especially compared to Hamilton in P13. Uh, Leclerc ended up behind him on the grid in P7, with Ocon, Verstappen and Bottas making up the top ten behind them. What were your thoughts on the qualifying session? It was definitely interesting for the fact that we did have a mixed up grid, especially even in Q1, we had Stroll out because mm. I kind of missed how that happened. I think, did they only go out once or something thinking that they were safe and then they pretty much weren't? Yeah, it, they went out once, thought that was a good time, but didn't realise how fast the track was evolving. They sort of knew they were almost, they were bound for essentially a Q2, a Q3 because and they got complacent I think was probably how it panned out because the track got so much faster as the session developed and that's how we saw drivers in sort of places we weren't expecting was the fact that if you sort of timed it right, you got those lap times because the track was getting warmer and warmer and warmer and tyres were getting grippier and grippier and grippier to obviously it has a, cer a certain sort of ceiling at that instant but the track was getting so much better that we saw this weird jumble up of orders and obviously McLaren didn't time their runs correct well and they both ended up out in Q1 and all of a sudden we had both hasses into Q2 which was a unique prospect. Yeah I think it was the timings were incredibly tight I know that there really was I don't think there was really much between Albon and Sargent yet Albon was quite well into Q2 and Sargent was 20th mm. and that was it did show how quickly that track really ramped up and yeah McLaren's didn't get in and but De Vries did which that I was yeah surprising because he hasn't really had you've sort of seen Yuki extract more of that out, out of that AlphaTauri than we've expected this year and mm. was De Vries has quite struggled quite a bit so for him to get into Q2 I think that was nice obviously it didn't nothing really came of it then in the race and yeah then the shocker of Hamilton was P13 yeah. with Nico Hulkenberg in front 12th mm. I believe Nico out qualified Lewis as well yeah it was a very very strange qualifying in the way that we saw the results let me just pull up the final was Alvin then 11th as well so you think there's a Williams and a Haas in front of Hamilton yeah, we had Albon 11th, Hulkenberg 12th, Hamilton 13th, with Joe and De Vries rounding out the Q2 entrance. So, and yeah, it was just a, it was a bit of an odd one. And not entirely certain where that sort of disparity or just sort of that delta in time came from, so much so that Hamilton could be that far down as well was the weird bit. Yeah, definitely. And then, yeah, then Q3, I don't think it, it obviously wouldn't have been a jumbled up 
as it was, if it, I don't think if it was for the Leclerc crash. I think what was interesting as well is that I think in Leclerc's first run, he would have been on for much higher, but he clipped the wall at turn 16 and that he should have got that out of his mind because then he locked up at turn 17, went wide, and then that he really hindered his lap time. So then, yeah, he fell down into seventh. And Max, because it got a lot windier between mm. two and two, three, which is what I think got Max out. And I've been trying to work out why Red Bull didn't either, he had time to get back out because he went quite early. So either get him out once and do a bank lap, come back in, change the tyres, refuel, or refuel for enough laps that he can just do it twice because there really wasn't much tyre degradation mm. to get that bank lap. Because I know you could pretty much rely on Max getting pole, I think, because he was just so dominant this weekend that I just, I just don't understand why Red Bull didn't, didn't do it. Yeah, they didn't yeah. make what to any other team would be a gamble to Red Bull as a fairly safe bet because they know the deg on their car is pretty low and they know that Max is able to go out there and just produce that time when it's needed of him. And I mean, you look at the the time that Perez set and the time that Alonso set, obviously both of them on banker laps in that first bit of Q3. Perez was a 126.841. Alonso was nearly half a second off that. And that's the two drivers setting their banker laps and Perez is half a second down the road. So obviously when you start asking a bit more of that Red Bull chassis, even in Perez's instance, that's not to sort of besmirch his name as a driver but you're going to get a far superior time all of a sudden but even for a banker lap you know you've got that solid margin you, yeah you should have just sent Verstappen out to get a second better banker lap in as opposed to leaving him with a, a sent what well, yeah he was a 120 he kept got through q2 on a 126.814 which was faster than what Perez was able to do you should have just sent him out for a banker lap and that would have been fine yeah. Or what you do is Verstappen should have just carried on with a really bad sector one. If, well, I, it depends whether he knew he was, if he was going out again or not, but he should have just got that banker lap in that may have made him a little bit higher because I think in a street track, you cannot rely on the fact that someone isn't going to crash and cause a red flag. I think you can be a bit more riskier in sort of, the standard tracks because we get we don't get many red flags but you get a lot of red flags stopping q3 uh, early because someone has binned it into the wall which obviously leclerc did mm. i just i don't know where what really happened with i just can't work it out what red bull were mm, what red bull were thinking or potentially potentially Max's side of the garage got complacent and when you look at the the times that Perez set across Q1, Q2, Q3 he really went out flying in that that first Q3 run and essentially did a Kevin Magnussen in Brazil last year where you go hard early because you just have this premonition that something's going to go wrong and he thinks I'll just get a really good lap time in really early if I need to I can go out and set another one you, you've got the car you've got the driver to know that you can put them out and set another good one but if you set a good one early you're covered for when something goes wrong and inevitably something did go wrong in this instance and it paid dividends for Perez and certainly his team so there's there's definitely something to be said there for don't want to speculate but certainly suggest that maybe Red Bull could do with taking a few more gambles to make their weekends easier 
in the long run, but ultimately it didn't really impact Max's weekend. The jumble up qualifying suggested we would see an exciting race, but ultimately it came down to how fast Max Verstappen could get through the field. Fernando Alonso in the post-qualifying chat suggested that it would take a maximum of 25 laps or so to see the number one uh, car filling his mirrors, uh, but it was lap 15, actually, it was 10 laps earlier than that, that Max Verstappen came past and was pretty much on for the win after that, really. From there, it was just a question of strategy and how well Sergio would defend. Sergio put up a good fight. There was a few attacking moves from Max into the hairpin towards the end of the lap and again into turn one, but there was nothing that he could do. He was really chewing through his tyres quite a lot at that point, and Max had spent a long time in the middle of the race really, really sort of carrying his tyres and it might have looked like he was flying past cars, but this is something I'll get onto later, certainly, is the fact that Max was flying past cars, but he was by no means at that point setting fastest laps. He was really sort of just gently cruising them through, which is quite interesting considering the amount of places he made up in that time. Um, and yeah, the answer is how well would Sergio defend? In reality, not very well. He didn't have the tyres for it. He'd sort of pushed on them a little too hard too early to try and open this gap to Verstappen and Alonso behind him it didn't work out and this all roots back to the tires and Pirelli brought some harder compounds to Miami than they had to Baku but the result was still the same a predictable one-stop strategy and the issue is that this doesn't offer the chance for any racing nor the incentive to fight because all that results is the need for an expensive pit stop time-wise so what we get is what we saw last night a load of cars essentially making way for Verstappen because there's there's more to be lost fighting him and needing new tyres than there is in the slim chance of successfully holding back a two-time world champion in a car that is nearly a second a lap quicker on any circuit we've seen it on this season. All you're going to do is cook your tyres and need to pit, putting you further down the order and giving you more overtaking to do, which in a race, especially this weekend, where drivers were lifting and coasting, having expected there to be a safety car period, they'd underfueled. So drivers really weren't going to be pushing and fighting to try and hold on to positions if they knew they were going to sort of lose out to it in the end because of fuel concerns, um, there was going to be no ripping back through the field. And this leads me on to sort of my, my tyre moan for this weekend. Um, F1 need to seriously reconsider their tyre demands from Pirelli or pick better tyre choices or rather less tyre choices. Anyone who follows IndyCar knows that you have a choice of two tyres, neither of which is anywhere close to running a full race. If Formula One did something similar, offering just the soft and medium compounds, we'd see teams having to work on a two-stop strategy or more. This constantly shuffles the field and means that drivers are less likely to, or more likely to fight rather, because they know they'll be pitting shortly regardless. If you know you're going to be pitting because your tyres are never going to make it to the end of the race, you're more likely to fight on them because you're going to be swapping them anyhow. And this is the second race in a row where the action has best been described as a connoisseur's GP. I mentioned this earlier on. There was some interesting stuff going on on the track, but you really needed to dig for it. And that's not wholly fun to many fans who just want to enjoy cars going round and round. The general fan, which F1 is appealing to or trying to appeal to more and more these days, isn't likely to care about tyre deltas and plan A minus 12, like in the same way that I obsess over it for certain. They want action on track and the chance for someone who isn't ver per allo to be on the podium. And I think this is, while we're getting more intriguing races from a very technical perspective, there is other fans besides me who want a race that's a bit more action-packed. And I can understand that. I wouldn't mind a race that's a bit more action-packed, but... I love the fact that early on we had Fernando Alonso going, I think we're going to go plan A minus 12, and he pitted around lap 25. So 
or he pitted around the standard pit window, I think. No, lap 25. So he was really expected to be able to push his mediums from early on, but didn't. And he made a mistake. He thought that it was plan. He was thinking of plan B minus 12. Oh, right. I never got so, that clarification. Yeah. So um, they asked him sort of in the post-race interviews um, that, and he said if it had been plan A minus 12, he would have already pitted like three laps before. So they were sort of laughing that at him. That was the thing that got me. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I was quite confused when he said that as well, because Perez still pitted five or so laps before Fernando did. So mm. I thought, how long is, did Fernando initially thought he was going to go? But um, I think going back to the fight with um, Max and Perez, on the first lap that Max came out um, from the pits, I was watching the timing between them, and Max took half a second out of Perez just on the first lap, yeah. which is crazy and I don't I don't know what the answer is because I mean no one else is probably going to keep a red ball behind them because they are so much quicker than everyone else they're going to get past you so why fight because it is inevitable it's I guess it's hard I don't I, I don't know what the answer is because it's like for you saying you know with Indy for instance they have the two tires that they have to go on formula e don't do it at all they stay on the, that tire i mean it's hard to compare because they're all so different race classes and also last year nobody wanted to go on that hard tire so i don't really know what's changed mm. other than it now is suddenly working um what tire compound did we have last year in miami I can't remember. Let's see if I can find it. C2, C3, C4. Yeah. So which is the same as what we had this year. C2, C3, C4. But obviously we've now got the C0 in there. Yeah. And I think even without that hard tyre, we were still coming out almost with the same race results. It's now just that Ferrari is the fourth fastest team and Aston Martin have risen drastically and mm. maybe Red Bull have even extended their lead. But I mean, it obviously turned out that going hard than medium was a much better strategy because it worked, I'd say, probably for 85% of the drivers that did it. You don't need to just look at Max for that. It really worked with Hamilton and to a lesser extent Stroll too because he did make up a fair few places. It still was just out of the points. Mm. And in terms of, I guess, durability, those mediums really struggled on a full race load. They, it was much better to do it in your second stint. And but even the people that started on the hard tyre, I think unless you're Max Verstappen or maybe even Red Bull, because I think Adrian Newey has worked so well on the aerodynamics of that car that the tyres are really, the car's really kind on its tyres because Hamilton was stuck for ages behind someone, I can't think who it was. And both Stroll and Hulkenberg really dropped off before pitching onto the mediums. And it's... It's hard because you can't say what to Pirelli, well, let's change the tyres, let's make them less durable because we had that sort of around 2020 and we were all moaning about that, about the complete opposite and that the drivers weren't racing because they were managing their tyres because they had such high degradation. So it's kind of like, well, where do you go? And I guess it got, what fueled that even more was also the fact that then 
strategists put less fuel in the car because they were banking on a safety car coming in and it it didn't mm. what tires did uh let me see if i'm finding it. here we go found it okay yeah so sonoda and stroll both ran the same tire strategy i was trying to remember if sonoda ran medium then hard because they both finished, they started off 17-18 on the grid, Sonoda ahead of Stroll, and they then both finished 11th and 12th, Sonoda ahead of Stroll, and I was wondering if they'd been, if they'd used the opposite tyres set up, but they hadn't, which really suggests that even if you're in something like that Alpha Tauri, pulling that inverse tyre strategy works, but it's hardly exciting, and it means that even that there's no difference in the way those two cars use their tyres, essentially, is the face value of it. Weirdly as well, Ocon went for the same strategy, but stayed in the exact same position. So it didn't really work out for him. Mm. But is that possibly, could that be more down to the way the Alpine uses its tyres? The fact that it doesn't, it needs to sort of work its tyres a bit more and that it, or it doesn't want to work its tyres, which is why it sort of couldn't get the most from those hards and it spent a lot of time dropping back. Maybe. I don't know because then obviously Gasly went. He did what most people did and did the medium hard, and he fell back. Mm. So yeah, it's hard to hard to say really. Because Ocon didn't actually do too bad. Looking back at his race trace, he was up to P three on lap twenty one, running that sort of hard tire. It was enough to make it work. Yeah, he was P3 for a good few laps, actually, and then started to drop back as the tyre faded away, and then he goes in for the pit stop uh, around lap 39.40. But even after that, he's able to make the mediums work and sort of pick his way back into the points, at which point uh, Pierre Gasly's hards are just starting to drop off and they do actually sort of run into each other at P8 and P9. But, yeah, it's, it's, I still feel it's quite early to try and figure out how each team and each car is working its tyres and getting the most from each compound because we've not seen a standardised enough array of races to be able to figure it out. We've had a lot of weird street circuits which often chew through their tyres. Baku had resurfaced sections. The entirety of Miami was resurfaced. Obviously, um, Albert Park is a bit different in that regard. Um, yeah, Saudi Arabia was resurfaced as well before going there this year. So all of them are going to be impacting tyres differently. All of them are very different in nature. So the cars are going to be looking to develop time from their tyres differently. So it's it's tricky to really say who's getting what from their tyres best. And the by and large of it is that I genuinely feel that we're not getting the best possible racing tyres from Pirelli because no one wants to race on them because they just overheat and overcook themselves and grain up too quickly. And I also think that the interesting point is Gunter Steiner said it about um, Baku, and you definitely you really saw it here as well, is that when you use that hard tyre, you have no warning that it's going to drop off. It just suddenly plummets. Yeah, and I mean... I saw with Hulkenberg and sort of Stroll, less so Max, I guess because he wasn't in dirty air. I really don't know. Mm. I mean, you look at the way that some of the drivers sort of position traces through the race go they're doing fine they're doing fine they're doing fine then they start to lose places and then they go into pit and that's obviously where the hard obviously is doing well doing well doing well doing well doing well nothing and it's that it's that sort of similar to the ferrari the way that it just drives it's a very much a knife edge thing if you've got everything 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 nothing and 
yeah, it's it's just not a good tire. I think that's that's where so much of this sort of stems from is the fact that it is not a good tire, and none of the Pirelli range seem to be. And we've been saying this since Pirelli really stepped up their game since we had that sort of British Grand Prix where nearly every car suffered a puncture quite a few years back now, and we were like, oh, make the tires a bit less poppy, and since then the tires have been absolutely horrible and it if you look at what michelin is able to achieve with their tires for endurance racing they are a far better tire better designed to deal with even higher loads going through them the speeds aren't quite as high but the cars weigh a lot more and you've got a more resilient tire a tire that is by all accounts a lot better to drive on why can't they come back to formula one please michelin do you think what didn't help as well is that we didn't have very many um other driving series going around Miami as well. I think you only had the Porsche. Was it Porsche? Yeah, we had Porsche Super Cup there. Yeah, but then I think they wouldn't have been on. I don't know what tires they are on, but if, uh, if it isn't a Pirelli tire, it ends up hampering the track rather than rubbing it, rubbing them sort of rubber in. Uh, what tires do they use? I don't know. It's a very good question. That was the other problem we had as well. That track was so fresh that people were kind of scared to go offline because it was slippy. Um, I don't think it would have been Porsche Super Cup. It would have been something, but it wasn't their 2023 season because that doesn't start till Imola. Oh. So whoever, whatever series it was, it was definitely like Porsche GT cars, but... Yeah, because um, as they were going round... There was the truck with Charles Leclerc's car on it. That one's one that's easily blown out of proportion. That was yeah. they they were all just simply doing a formation lap. They were driving their way around to the grid. So they're not they're all going slowly. They're aware there's going to be other vehicles on circuit, people on circuit. I think that's they were going around essentially on double yellows. You're expecting it to be a bit like that. I think that's a, that's on the face of it, it's one of those things you go, what the hell are they doing? Straight off the back of Baku. Um but in reality, that was fine. The real straight off the back of Baku is the fact that Lando Norris came into pit and there was just someone walking across pit entry. Again. How, nonchalantly as well. Yeah, not entirely certain what role they were. They seem to have some sort of tabard on. It Again, it's, it's all becoming a bit farcical and a bit of a joke. And it's, I was having this discussion with a friend of the podcast, Jacob. It's the case of are we growing a bit tired of Formula One, the fact that it's just not as good as it could be? I don't know. In terms of the racing, I mean, look how long we had. It's just a different dominance, isn't it? Mm. Look how long we had Mercedes dominance for. Before that, look how much we had Red Bull dominance. It's In terms of the racing, I think it's almost very much the same. I think it's just the, every, the wider issues around it or that the FIA are focusing on things that are kind of like, why are you focusing on that? Please focus on this. And mm. they're not. And they are trying to create, I mean, strong, sort of better racing, more fun racing. That's obviously what they did with the regulation change. I think they just forgot that Adrian Newey exists. Yeah. Because if you didn't have Red Bull, everyone else is quite tightly packed. Mm. So... Yeah, I mean, if you take away Red Bull from the fact of the matter, you redistribute the points that are available, I think you'd have a slightly more 
interesting race series certainly at this point in time and that yeah red bull are now on double the points of their next rival in the championship aston martin behind them they're well over a little over double actually so it's yeah i think we just sort of underestimated quite how quickly red bull would be able to develop their way ahead of things and equally it doesn't help that mercedes essentially dropped the ball we were relying on mercedes to be able to build a competitive car and they haven't and for Ferrari and that they were the mm. uh, well they started off last season maybe the quickest mm. and certainly in qualifying mm. and obviously they were leading the championship and then I guess you, you still Red Bull had their right liability issues at the start but they were they were up there with Red Bull and now suddenly they're the fourth fastest team and it's kind of like what happened I know obviously a lot of people have left Ferrari, but still, it's kind of like, where are you? Yeah, there's been this sort of drop back from the two teams that previously have always been closest to Red Bull. And Red Bull have also made this big step forward, which has sort of exaggerated the gulf between. And as a result, you've got Red Bull and then you've got literally three other teams scrapping out for that third step on the podium every weekend. And... We would have yeah. Fernando Alonso leading the championship, though. It's interesting. It's an interesting thought for certain. I still think it's what well, we're into our fifth race. It's Red Bull are, do are dominant now, but I think don't forget about Fernando Alonso. Mm. And as well, both Mercedes and, and Ferrari are having upgrades in the European when we go back to European racing. So mm. I don't think they're going to get up to Red Bull level, but hopefully we can sort of at least see a mixed up third. <laughs> mm. There's a chance for them to start possibly competing with Perez, at least on track, which is going to force Red Bull to play their hands differently. I don't think they've got a car or driver setup that's competitive enough to get close to Verstappen. But certainly I reckon that, again, it's, it feels mean to say that they're going to be able to get close to Perez, but ultimately the results he's put on paper this season, while great, still suggest that potentially another team, if they were able to just develop their car a bit more, could be able to get a driver closer to him. And all of a sudden Red Bull are going to have to play a slightly different game. So the season's still very much playful. We are barely over a fifth of the way into it we're somewhere like 22 percent of the way into this like there is a long way still to go so it's early to be disappointed but yeah i think our expectations are on the back foot at this point we're sort of like oh, surprise me go on every weekend we're like just do something interesting maybe and We'll have to wait and see. We haven't had a wet race yet, so I think Imola could be the one to change this. Imola could be the one to rekindle a bit of joy. Monaco will be exciting because it's Monaco and it's got the pomp and ceremony that Miami wishes it has, but just frankly doesn't. Um, so we'll Fernando have two. Alonso win, yeah. Fernando Alonso said that he'll keep Max Verstappen behind him in Monaco. So <laughs> He did, and I genuinely believe that. I've still got it written onto our big spreadsheet that I think Alonso will win in Monaco and Sainz will win in Spain. I still, I think, oh, I think Timo said Sainz will win in Spain or something. But yeah, I reckon that it, it's coming. And yeah, we've got two race weekends coming up that are vastly different to anything else. One offers the chance of rain. One offers the chance of possibly a very different winner because simply of the nature of Monaco. And it'll be good to see what happens from there, I think. 
but yeah, that's that pretty much sums up, I think, our thoughts and most of the action on track. Obviously, we've already mentioned Charles Leclerc battling with Kevin Magnussen at one point, the Ferrari customer team at the Haas against the Ferrari manu- sort of factory team. Interesting. Again, Magnussen's one of those drivers to really get his elbows out, and it's great to see him if he ends up in a position where he can. And I think it's a bit different to Brazil last year, where he knew he was going to basically get past early on in that sprint. There was no point in him really fighting. But here he sort of... The Haas is a bit better and they know that they can fight a bit more with it and it seems to have paid off. So it was great to see him fighting around a bit. And equally, the Alpines made some great progress through the field or held on to their respective positions well equally. But I know the rest of the drivers we'll get onto with our winners and spinners. And Timo in his absence has supplied us with a winner. Uh, George Russell, P4 and a difficult weekend for Merck is excellent. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fair enough. Yeah, he did... It wasn't a bad drive from George. Um, and again, he he got himself in the workplace for qualifying and was able to capitalise on that as the race went by. I think that's the fairest way to justify what he's put there. He's also put a second note, which is plus EMT, for almost a full clean sweep in predictions, where, which we'll certainly get to. We'll get to our predictions in due course. But Ellie May, your winner, please. I have three, which okay. is greedy, I know. My first being... Obviously, Sir Jackie Stewart. Rightly so. For those that don't obviously have British Sky Sports, Martin Brundle was doing his infamous grid walks when uh, he reached sort of a security section that he wasn't allowed to pass. And he was, Roger Federer was in in that sort of high, sort of, I guess, VIP area. Yeah. And um, he was shouting at Roger to get an interview and Jackie just went under the security rope off the security guards like do you not know who I am and he got Roger Federer over and I thought what an incredible man I love him so much he's in his 80s bless him but he's still got that fight he's lovely he's still got that dog in him he's still got this passion for motorsport for racing and stuff I've seen him at Goodwood doing sort of grid walks and talks and sort of presentations and pieces to camera and there's this real glint in his eye that he's still engaged with racing and everything that goes with it he absolutely loves it and he's not an f1 to be seen to be a sort of influencer or a poser he's there to enjoy racing and motorsport something he's loved and been a sort of advocate for for donkey's years but then also to see f1 lose his way so much that all of a sudden you have security lay their hands on jackie stewart like oh come on guys yeah it's jackie stewart yeah a man that is there because he is a three-time world champion himself and he loves the racing. Yeah, he is like, the fabric doing? of the sport. And you're going, I'm sorry, fabric of the sport, national hero, one of the all-time greats. Please stand behind the little velvet rope. <laughs> yes. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go but, speak to my little yeah. tennis friend. <laughs> my best, my into, best Jackie Stewart impression. <laughs> going into actual... Uh, current f1 drivers as winners yes my first one is hamilton because although he struggled in qualifying his race came good in the end obviously at the start he said that um that he thought it really wasn't going to work out because he started on the hard and then went medium but it really excelled for him because he ended up being 13th to 6th and ahead of charles leclerc and I think that just kind of proves that the Mercedes is faster than that Ferrari. Mm. 
there's certainly something in it that Mercedes, and crucially, he was able to overtake Alex Albon without spinning Albon out as well. So we're seeing driver growth there, which is what we want to see in Lewis Hamilton. Despite his his sort of tenure in Formula One, he's proving that you can still learn and simply not nerf Alex Albon every time you go up the inside of him. Uh, what um, was your other spit winner? My other one, lastly, Verstappen, because if it wasn't for uh, Charles' crash, Max had been so dominant that weekend, he would have got pole, which is obviously ultimately Verstappen's fault for not getting that banker lap in. But he was so dominant as well in that race. He really made what should have been the worst of the two strategies going hard medium really work for him. And I just don't think you can ever underestimate Max Verstappen and the, just the raw racing strength that he's got. I mean, he ended up watching that battle between Magnussen and Leclerc go on and thought, yeah, you're making each other slower. Let me just go past both of you. Um, I think kind of what Fernando Alonso was saying that he thought that it would take him 25 laps was because he was hoping that all the other cars would be in sort of DRS range of each other and make it harder, but they really weren't. So Max was just able to pick them off one by one, lap after lap. He didn't have to sort of, wait until it's like turn one, which was where most people would like to overtake because if you over, overtook at turn 17, like Charles Leclerc um, did. Found out, yeah. You just get DRS back past going along with yeah. the start finish, yeah. And so he could he, he would overtake at turns 11, 17, one, wherever there was DRS, he was just like, yeah, bye. Mm. He made some definitely interesting passes through the race. And I think there's, it speaks two things is one, the fact that he made that strategy work and the fact that he was able to extract so much from those tires in those such that circumstance, he is, it really solidifies his ability as a driver to make a strategy work and demand the best from it. It makes me wonder quite how far ahead he would have been if he had done that strategy from pole quite how far he could have just simply extended, extended, extended on those hards swap for mediums then blast off at the end when he's on low fuel load lightweight and really gone for it i think the gap he would have been able to pull out against even perez would have been phenomenal like he it beggars belief really but equally yeah when you say like the double overtake on charlotte magnuson it shows that he's not a driver that just uses the might of his car to get past he's sitting there he's watching he's figuring out what the cars ahead of him are doing and where's the best place to logically get past them because he knows that if he gets them in turn one while they're battling they're both going to have compromised lines on the exit so he's not going to have to worry about any of them catching him in the back section or even getting close towards the next drs point it's a very methodical very thought out sort of approach and it it shows in the way he drives he is like an all-round package he is not just a sort of ruthlessly fast driver he is a a sort of statistician or well a, not a statistician yeah strategist is the word i was thinking of he's sort of a strategist he can think his way through things more than simply just using the sort of might of his own car to get through it's it's easy to gloss over him when he has these very dominant races but he's dominant for a reason and there's and it's because he's sort of thought and approached the race quite well and i think equally as well he, he probably used a lot more fuel at the start overtaking all the other drivers and almost must have had i think kind of has the same mindset of fernando alonso and that he's planning because then i i don't know how he was doing it but he was lifting then later on in the race he was lifting and coasting more than perez but getting quicker laps out mm. of it. And it's like, how do you do that? 
yeah, how are you able to extract more lap time doing what should in theory be a slower way of deploying power and getting around the circuit, lifting and coasting or potentially carrying different momentum through the corners and running a slightly different line towards the end of the race when the track's more rubbered in. There's something genuinely quite magical about what he's been able to achieve this weekend. And that's the thing, that's why I said this is on the face of it, a dull GP, but as you really start to pick away at it and look at all the little elements and layers to it, it's quite clever. It's like one of those overproduced gin and tonics. On the face of it, it tastes like a gin and tonic, but if you genuinely sort of go, you notice all the sort of botanicals that go into it and make it actually quite interesting and quite enjoyable. But, yeah. Who was your winner, Jesse? Uh, Alpine, for me. I This was the race weekend that they certainly needed, and especially on the back of off the back of two pointless race weekends, obviously Australia and Azerbaijan, it feels weird to say two, given the amount of time that's elapsed, especially since Australia. But yeah, the fact that they've been able to come back, rework the car a little bit, refocus and get something from the team, especially with, I want to say, Laurel Rossi, really getting up their sort of, or is it their sporting director or something at Alpine, really getting up their spout about sort of not being competitive, having a bad attitude. So the team being able to walk away from this race weekend with a handful of points and enough to tie them with McLaren in the standings shows that they're a team that's fighting back and really looking at things. And around a circuit that isn't supposed to be sort of great, we're able to walk away with a good result. I think trying to think where, where have I said that people have come home with. So obviously, yeah, Ocon and Gasly, it's not a huge points haul, but six points is not too shabby i mean it's the same amount of points that charles earned in on his own so uh, it's not, not terrible well, i was kind of i don't know i'm in two minds about rp and obviously they did well they both got in the points but gansley was obviously fourth for the mm. start in, uh, sort of after the first lap so it kind of i don't know i almost got a bit disappointed that he then fell back but you've got to look at the cars that they finished behind, both Red Bulls, both one Aston Martin, both Mercedes and both Ferraris. So yeah. I don't know. You... I just thought they may be able to, maybe I was, it was just a bit too much hope that I thought they may be able to fight off the Mercedes, but they just, they couldn't. I would have hoped that not necessarily the, um, the Mercedes, but possibly one of the Ferraris, if there'd been a pit stop strategy where so one of them ended up ahead of a Ferrari, I would have hoped they might have been able to keep them back. But again, when you look at essentially, if you were to sort of shake everything back out into its standardized order, Red Bulls and Aston Martin and Mercedes Ferrari, Mercedes Ferrari, and then it's the case of what next? And Alpine were able to be that what next, which I think is what they've needed certainly to sort of show, no, we're back on the right track. We've figured out the developments we need to focus on with this car, how to make it work and they've come away finally from a race weekend where not only have they got great data but they've got a great result to back it up and i think that's moving forwards is going to be something to hold on to as promising i hope we'll see a sort of similar repeat of that going into imola and again i think maybe in imola they might be able to challenge possibly the ferraris and the mercedes a bit more where do you think alpine's strength is because obviously last year it was like their straight line speed, wasn't it? Whilst this year, I don't know, I just feel like it's they don't have that straight line speed really anymore. It's I don't know. You, if you've ever played like a racing game on console, I think the Alpine is very much the neutral car. It has yeah. no strengths in any particular area. It is completely normal across the board. It has no deficits. It has no sort of 
great extra areas it's not really good in a straight line it's not super slippery it's not really good handling not really good in low speed sectors or high speed sectors it's just across the board simple i think that's sort of what we're working with at the moment and hopefully off the back of this weekend the circuit that's got a bit of a high speed sector it's got a bit of a low speed sector they'll have been able to figure out what bits they can really work on and either develop their good bits so they know where they can push harder in race weekends or know which bits they need to work harder on to get them more akin to their slightly stronger sections if they came out of it and said yeah we were really great through the chicane and the exit onto that long back straight we'll go okay so we know we've got that low speed agility but we need to then obviously look at the high speed, those sort of sweeping opening corners. We need to figure out how to make the car feel more stable, how to find a way of bleeding out a bit more of the floor. And then they've got something to work with. So I think beyond simply saying, yes, they got six points. Well done, Alpine. That's more than you've got in the past two races. There's a sort of broader scope to what they've been able to achieve with this weekend, certainly. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. I think as well, their main disadvantage last year again was the reliability so I guess you've got to work on that first and foremost before working then on anything else mm. and I think they've still the engine's still badged as like a Renault e-tech or something it's been a reliable engine they haven't actually had any mechanical retirements this year have they no but they did have the Gasly fire didn't they mm. I think that was a gearbox oil leak more than anything it looked quite far back in under the engine cowl when it caught fire, which suggested me to a possibly a hydraulic line that went. I haven't seen any sort of reports to suggest what probably caused it, but one out of essentially what we're on, that's our fifth race now, one out of 10 entrants to have a mechanical retirement isn't shabby because obviously you've got to double it up across your cars. It's, it's yeah, not, it's definitely a lot better for Malpine. Especially compared to last year, which was a bit of a rough one for um mechanical reliability certainly we'll move on to spinners and timo's just gone pretty straight down the line mclaren just nowhere which i think is kind of fair the strategy has never played into their hands piastri wasn't really able to get much out of the car i don't know how well he would have been feeling this weekend um obviously we mentioned in baku he was feeling pretty rough quite sick down three kilos unable to keep down food and water so he's obviously on a rec personal recovery trend and norris was battling a strategy that just didn't seem right and obviously took a bit of damage and lost a lot of track position in the opening lap with De Vries. So it could have been a better weekend for McLaren, but I don't think too much of it was down to the car. Yeah, I think McLaren have had a lot of bad luck, especially Lando Norris in terms of lap one incidents, which has then kept just ruined his entire races, really, because unfortunately, I don't think that McLaren has enough power in it yet to sort of if it gets tagged in lap one, it doesn't have enough power then to get up to where it can potentially be like with Baku, mm. which was, they were in the top P 10. Yeah, Norris yeah. scored points in Baku. Yeah, I think it was P8, I believe. So. Checks notes, hang on. Uh, Norris, P10, one point. No, no, that was qualifying. Hang on, scroll down a bit further. That was sprint. Hang on. There's so many different lists to scroll past. Uh, Norris, P9. There we go. Yeah, which... I mean, obviously, Baku is such a different track, but you've got to think, what, Saudi Arabia, Norris tagged the wall in qualifying, which ruined his that. He then got 
he then had uh, Oscar Piastri's front wing in that then tagged his car and caused him damage. Mm, he got damage, sort of proxy damage lodged under him, essentially, wasn't it? I can't remember if he had any problems in Australia. No, Australia, they got a nice haul of points. Mm, yeah, Norris um, was sixth and Oscar was eighth, wasn't he? Yeah, which they sort of managed to keep out of the way of the carnage and got a lot of points, which then obviously put them above Alpine. Mm. Um, then, yeah, Baku really has been sort of the only weekend where it they kind of got points on merit. Mm. And then every... Especially, yeah, like I said earlier on, especially Lando Norris has just had a lot of bad luck. Yeah, I mean, it's also been the only weekend they've got points, is the crucial thing. Mm. I think, yeah, Bahrain, no points. Obviously, you had Piastri retirement and Norris was way down. He was the last of finishers, P17, wasn't he? And then you've got Saudi, like you said, obviously Norris carrying damage from collecting Piastri's front wing. So you had uh Norris 17th Piastri 15th I want to say and a long way off the pace then Australia was their points and then we went into Baku where they just weren't really anywhere the sprint they didn't get any points for that one um and they were quite uncompetitive I think Piastri was a long way off he was P10 actually for the sprint I think but I know Norris was a hell of a long way down having started 10th as well so he lost out there and then the race, the Norris picked up two points, and that was that. So, yeah, they've only had two points scoring weekend so far, and they've not been big ones. Yeah, I don't I don't really know what the answer is. Well, they, they've admitted themselves they just went down the wrong direction, and now mm. they're trying to make up for that. I think they've learned from Mercedes that the fact is that if you've figured out something's gone wrong, admit it and try, try something different a bit sooner than really try and press on with it, because you're going to know sooner rather than later if something's going to work. Um, your spinner from the weekend, though. Ferrari. I almost don't want to talk about it because it depresses me. <laughs> I mean, Sainz wasn't all that bad, really. Mm. He, I mean, what, qualified third, which I'm not sure he quite would have got. No, second, third or second? He was third because you heard yeah. Alonso second, wasn't it? That's it, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if he would have got that if it wasn't for Charles's crash, but nonetheless, mm. he got the good banker lap in, which is what you needed, yeah. And then the race itself, what fifth, Russell, yeah, fifth behind Russell, but nearly 10 seconds off Russell, which makes is me think, that, could he have been closer to Russell? Is that 10 seconds taking into account the penalty that he got, or? Um, that includes his penalty, I believe. So it's only really a five-second penalty or five-second time difference. But again, I'd like to think he would have been closer to Russell. Yeah. Running um, a similar strategy, starting ahead of him, Russell had a bit more of a feel to pick through. He's lucky that then he had, I think it was like a 12-second deficit between what was it, him and Hamilton. Uh, yeah, there was like a, a about 11th, I think, or, or something like that, toward back towards Hamilton, yeah. Yeah, and then obviously Charles was just two crashes in one weekend. Mm. He then spent forever behind Magnussen, just 
not really learning from the fact that whenever you overtake around turn 17, Magnuson is just going to get it back around turn one. It just took him forever to figure it out. And I think that in some ways hampered his race, but he was also just nowhere. I think neither Carlos or Charles had confidence in that car because they were saying, you know, things were wrong with that car in different areas, lap after lap. So it wasn't consistent. Mm. But even though Carlos didn't have that bad a race, he still got a penalty. And it's like, can we just have a clear race from both of them, please? Yeah, one race weekend where neither of them have penalties, mechanical issues. They've not been, they've not spun out. They've not been spun out. They've not ended up in a strange position on the grid due to taking new power units, something which they've now increased the cap for since Charles took those power unit bits and took his penalty for it. So how are they going to work that backwards in the future? He's allowed to take an extra one for free or something, or when he takes his sixth one they don't give him the penalty because he already served that early on in the season i don't know that's up to the fia to try and figure out we know that it's not going to be figured out well almost certainly but yeah it, it could have been a better weekend for ferrari I, I definitely agree with you there i think science really could have been higher and i think leclerc was catching hamilton towards the end of the race but ultimately i don't think that mercedes should have really come past when it did there was everything in that Ferrari to keep it behind or should have been a bit more in that Ferrari to keep that Mercedes behind. And lo and behold, he didn't. Yeah. Anyway, who's your spinner? Uh, my spinner is De Vries. I think I slated him after Baku and I'm not going to so much slate him, but uh, come on, Nick. Could have been better. At least he wasn't lapped this time, but uh, he was one minute 20. 28, nearly 1 minute 29 behind the leaders, so he was close to being lapped. And I think that a lot of people, the discussion has certainly spun out to the point that a lot of people are now questioning how much longer he's going to be in that Alpha Tauri seat. And yeah, I think potentially he set his own bar too high with that Monaco drive in, Will in the Williams. It was the right car for the right circuit to show off your talents back in Monaco last, Monza last year, rather. And it's yeah he set his own bar too high and that alpha tower he has been it's not a car that suits his driving style especially having come from a long period of time in formula e it's it's not a car that matches that and i think that the power delivery the way that it comes through turns is taking a long time for him to get used to and especially because we had that reduced testing time at the beginning of the season we've seen so many more bits of weekends be wholly competitive, obviously with that sprint weekend in Baku and so many races where if you get it wrong, you're out. And that's sort of knocked his confidence to a certain extent, I'd say. And it's really not giving him time to get used to this new, essentially new style of racing compared to the way you drive in Formula E. It's a very different sport. And I hope it will get better with time. But yeah, coming home just shy of 10 seconds behind Joe in the Alfa Romeo, who had a bit of a nowhere race. It really says you're, no, even further back than that. You had, um, Norris was 10 seconds off Joe, and he was a few seconds behind Norris further still. So, yeah, Norris, you can forgive for being there. Joe was quite nowhere. And then if you're a long way back off that, really got to start asking questions. And, yeah. It's tough, because I think there's a kind of, 
lots of reasons have then become sort of one big reason, I guess, mm. that he's not performing. I think obviously one of them is like you said, he's come from Formula E, which is a, a totally different style of driving um, to a Formula One car. That Alpha Tauri is not a great car. I think as well, like you said, he drove so well in Monza that we had such high expectations for him that we're kind of disappointed that he now hasn't met them. Whilst Yuki Tsunoda, we all really underestimated as a driver and he's done so well this year. Mm. Even last year, he did actually very well. Yuki was really coming into it last year, but this year, certainly, he's been consistently 11th or 10th. He's been fighting for those points and there's been a big turnaround the way he drives. And equally, I think he's worked with the team through the tail end of last year to make sure that this car was something he was a lot more atoned with. And that's why we're seeing these far better performances. Is he's been he's found a way of working with his team, working as a team player, which at the end of the day, Formula One's a team sport beyond just being about the drivers. There is the team championship. And Yuki's clicked with that. And there's really there's seems to be this sort of idea that he's worked with that a lot more. And I think Nick is suffering a certain extent of being the new guy to the team. And that's really not helping, especially with that big high of coming in as a Formula E world champion, a Formula 2 world champion. Admittedly, the only person who was challenging for that was um, everyone's favourite Canadian. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I don't want to make my decision up on De Vries too early because we've had a lot of street circuits as well. I'd like to see him on other style of circuits he hasn't I mean we have got to remember he is still a rookie whilst I think we've actually been very pleasantly surprised by Oscar and Sergeant that we mm. actually they have done pretty well yeah Sergeant yeah. I'd argue especially in that Williams has often had it in places where you don't expect it to have been you can sort of I don't want to say forgive Albon for it, but you would, you're not surprised when Albon puts it a bit further up the field because Albon is a very talented driver with a few years' experience over Sargent. So when Sargent gets it closer, it's sort of like, oh, hello, that's good. And equally, Piastri's had a bit of an up-and-down season, but he's had his points out of it. He's had spells of ill health, but by and large, he's been performing, as you'd expect, or alongside Norris in that McLaren. De Vries is the outlier when it comes to the rookies, and it's it shows... Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, we are only five races in, and so this is obviously his, his sixth Formula One mm. race. You've got to look at how, I mean, even if you look at Yuki, and when he came into the sport, he was making mistakes, crashing. It went through a big phase of crashing. You Points on debut for Yuki, battling off, um, Bottas for points on his opening race. I think it was Bottas he was against. But yeah. And then after that, he had a bit of a tumultuous spell. So it's once Nick settles down, I think we could see a far better driver. But I hope that Alpha Tauri have the wiseness to settle him down and at least for their own good, try and extract something for him before they go and grab Liam Lawson from Super Formula. Yeah, I think. Give it, give him the season at mm. least to get to grips with the car before you make any sort of rash decisions. Yeah, if we're getting to sort of Brazil, Qatar, somewhere in that region, and we're still struggling to get points out of the guy, 
I think we need we as a team you'd be looking to sort of swap him, especially if you're getting towards Brazil, which is like third last race on the calendar. You really want to be sort of thinking about making a change and phoning Liam Lawson going, yo, what are you doing next year? Um, but yeah, Qatar, I think, would be sort of your your earlier tipping point. You're on your way back towards that sort of final leg of races. You've got your Cota, Mexico, Brazil, Las Vegas, and then uh, Yas Marina. You've got a few races, five races left in the season to really start figuring things out. I think Qatar would be the, the tipping point for De Vries to work towards. I hope he gets something together before then. Because uh, he's a nice guy and a great driver, but I just don't think Formula One has been an ideal place for him to really get his feet under the table. Yeah, it's it's tough, but at least I guess the good thing is, apart from Baku, he hasn't crashed, so he's not yeah. been expensive for the team. Yes, he's just been a bit slow. Yeah. But he's not like been racking up the bills for front wing suspension components apart from Baku. But even then, they weren't huge sort of car going end over end, bits and pieces flying everywhere, Mick Schumacher style shunts, which is, I suppose, a real a sort of a breath of fresh air for the team to a certain extent. We'll move on to some other drivers that are worth a mention. And we've mentioned Sonoda already a fair bit, actually. And he didn't have a bad weekend of things. No points, but his drive was really one that sort of stood out on the fact that he was able to get a car that shouldn't have been able to make that much progress that far up through the field. Suggests that there's really something to keep an eye on with him and the way he's driving this season. The other one is Magnussen, who I think we've already touched on with the sort of way he and Charles were racing through the sort of mid-sector of that race was interesting enthralling and proves that he's back in the sport for a very good reason and because he can extract things out of that car when when everything's set up right which i think it relies on a good setup that has he can get things done with it and that's refreshing to see it's nice to see a driver able to achieve with the machinery they're provided and when you get that cohesion in the team is nice so yeah anyone else from your side that you want to sort of chuck in I don't think so. Maybe I would stretch that maybe to Haas in general. I mean, Hulkenberg didn't get into the points, but it, it wasn't really bad from either driver, really. Uh, Hulkenberg did look at home, actually. Yeah, he wasn't... He hasn't been struggling through the season, but certainly this weekend he looked very stable with the platform he had been provided. And I know that the teams had been sort of working, the two sides of the garage been working together and going, we found this setup is working a lot better. And they've been working better as a Formula One team, I think, is the is the way to look at Haas. They've certainly taken a step forward in that regard and become a bit more competitive. And they're clinging on to seventh in the standings as well. So it's not it's paying off for them, certainly. It's yeah, nice to kind of see for Haas that they have, I think, two very good drivers that they can rely on. Mm. Um I guess my other point <laughs> would be in a funnier one. Uh, did you see Fernando Alonso let his intrusive thoughts win? And oh, sniffing the flowers. Yeah, behind Max Verstappen, he was just really examining those orchids. And at one point, he was just like really like inside, sort of getting into the orchid. It almost looked like he was trying to look to see whether it was in a pot so he could take it home. Oh, there was, I think it was one of the driver press conferences. He was sat on like the end of the row of seats and was sort of looking at the pot plant next to him and sort of feeling the leaves. And I was like, 
Is he just sort of lining up to do a bit of gardening when he finishes Formula One? Is he becoming a bit of a botanist? He's, he had a prettiest fun weekend all in being Fernando Alonso. You got to have a look at some nice plants, smell the orchids, and watch a bit of Formula One on the telly as he's driving around doing it. Yeah. Like, he, he had a pretty quiet race considering he said, it was like, yeah, as you sort of head down towards turn 11, there's a big jumbotron, and I could just watch Stroll making overtakes as coming yeah. past. I was like, Oh man, that's just something else. Maybe, maybe he is a keen gardener, and that is what has now chilled Fernando Alonso out. He's found his zen, and that's why he's a, a better person to work with and more of a team player. Is he goes home and tends to a little bonsai tree or something? <laughs> Who knows? We'll perhaps try. We'll, we'll try if we ever get the chance to go to a Grand Prix. We'll call, corner him and say, "Couldn't help but noticing in Miami, you were really taken by the plants. Is it something you, you're a plant guy, you're a plant dad. Is that?" Anyway, we'll move on from Fernando Alonso and his plants to Constructors Countdown. And this week there's been no change in the Constructor standings at all. Like, no, no places exchanged whatsoever. Fantastic. So yes, that is how the constructors lineup stands. But how does it stand when we look at our predictions? And well, uh, one of us is sort of doing a Red Bull this season and running away with things. Um, uh, we'll start with the lowest scorer this week, which was Timo. So we can slate him because he's not here. Um, he scored one point for Perez Pole. Perez did not win, so he did not score a point for that. Verstappen was not second, so no points there. Leclerc was not third. Hamilton didn't set fastest lap. And Alfa Romeo did not finish in the top 10. So nil point for Timo. Um, I scored two points, so not doing too badly. Slowly, slowly catching up uh, for a Perez pole and a Verstappen fastest lap. I did not get Stroll or Sainz in second and third, respectively, and did not have my McLarens in the points, which, again, was sort of the thing that everyone poo-pooed and go, oh, McLarens in the points. I was like, oh, well, just you wait. They, they won't be. Um, and then, of course... With a rip-roaring five points, Ellie May. The only thing you missed out on was your pole position prediction, which was Verstappen. Um, you were close. Admittedly. I was very close. Had, I'm kind of annoyed because I haven't got a full... I haven't got a full house yet. The best you've done this season has been two fives and a four. You've got four on the opening race, uh, five in Australia somehow out of that race, and then a five again here in... Um, Baku. It tends but, to be the races where it looks like I shouldn't get the points that I get, I do. No, it just seems to sort of alternate. You go for lots of points, little points, lots of points, little points, lots of points. So you're not going to do very well in Imola, but whatever your Monaco prediction is, that's sound, <laughs> that's going to be fire. Um, uh, well, I almost think, yeah, because going into the race, I don't think we were on for a Verstappen, Perez, Alonso, one, two, three. No, certainly coming out the back of Baku, we anticipated it potentially being a bit different, I think. Yeah, and then my wild prediction of uh, a rookie out-qualifying their teammate, it ended up being De Vries. Yeah, the one rookie we didn't expect to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it was... It was certainly an interesting ploy, but hey, it's earned you five points, which means that your total for the season is currently 15. Um, 
Timo's on seven, I'm on five, so you're on triple my score at this point in time. Um, and we haven't actually had a guest on to make any predictions yet, so guest is still on zero. So technically I'm not last, um, but out of people that have actually actually taking part in this, I am last, yeah. How does that level up with the constructors? Because I'm almost, I'm just over double Timo's. Uh, just over double, which is the gap from... Red, Red Bull to Aston Martin. But if we were to look at like whose points, if I were to triple them, would give me Red Bulls? Let's see. Let's do some quick maths here. Uh, standings, constructors. So what's a third of that? Um, I'm. If you're Red Bull, I'm essentially somewhere just behind Ferrari. So Ferrari are on 78 and Red Bull are on 224. So if you were to triple 224, um, 78 gives you two three four so yeah i'm essentially ferrari in this situation which on a normal day i'd take yay i'm ferrari that's my team but if it means that i'm in fourth essentially i'm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go for a really crazy imola and see whether my predictions work whether i just somehow am able to admit to the universe um, with, with i don't know the, racing show. My the, the you've got to stick with the pattern. It seems to be the good week for points, bad week for points, good week for points, bad week for points. So whatever you say for Imler isn't really going to pay off. Okay, I'll go wild for Monaco then. If you could, that'd be fantastic. If you could sort of share my predictions, which is an Alonso win, that'd I be. I think he'll win it. So. Can I put you down for an Alonso win now? You can. Okay, an also... Alonso win for Monaco. I'm also going to put as my wild prediction, I was thinking about it today for Monaco, that Charles Leclerc won't crash. Ooh, that's certainly an interesting one. Because he's crashed at every street race. Yeah, (laughs) Alonso win and a Charles won't crash for Monaco. I'm sure we'll fit in some more predictions. We'll fill that out later, close to the time. But that's how the predictions stand at the moment. We'll have a quick look at the... F1 Fantasy League. Um, so the highest scorer this week for the Miami Grand Prix was at Francisco Rhodes 2, 342 points, a little way ahead of my mate Dan actually, Lacresse scoring 336 points, so not too shabby. And third place ah, on 332. Um, my teams were uh, 11th, 16th, and 25th, Jaffa Cake Racing, Midbeds Racing on BRT Yamaha, 289, 272, 179. So not terrible, but worse than they did last week. EMT Racing, however, sixth place, 298 points. Not bad. Not bad at all. Um, where are your other teams? What are your other ones called? Uh, Experiment Underdog. Uh, Experiment Underdog, the bottom of the league, 30, 49 points, worst scorer. Mm. And the other one is... Uh, Daddy's Cash, isn't it? I, that was the podcast one. Is that the podcast one? What was yeah. your, you've only got two, haven't you? I've only got two. Yeah. So, underdog experiment underdog, 49 points this weekend, unfortunately. Um, and then the podcast ones, which is, which is, which is, which is... Oh, I've got to scroll a long way down until I spot one of them. Yeah, Daddy's Cash, 186. Uh, My Neck, Mike Crack, 174. And Please Subscribe, 61. So not great being the it's mad that daddy's cash outscored my neck my crack <laughs> not entirely certain how we pulled that one off what who have we got for daddy's cash for snap and strolled sergeant norris joe with williams and aston martin uh so what went wrong then for my neck mike neck mike crack 
Uh, Hulkenberg cites De Vries Alonso Bottas Aston Martin Ferrari. Mm. Could have been better there. Anyway, the overall standings, though, um, means we've actually seen a swap at the top of the leaderboard. Ah, takes the lead with 1,633 points with at Francisco Rhodes uh, in second. Uh, 1627 and Alex H9V2 1625 points. Uh, the highest of any of us on the podcast is EMT Racing up one place. You've just overtaken my mid beds racing. Uh, wow. 1349 points plays 1345. Although Jaffa Cake, Jaffa Cake Racing is still in it in 11th with 1211. I think I've got DeFries in my team. Oh, well, EMT Racing. That. Yeah, and Bottas, I yeah. think. You have Aston Martin and Red Bull, so that's always a pretty good earner there. Verstappen and Alonso, again, pretty solid earners. Then you've got Bottas, Hulkenberg and De Vries. I might... I, I don't want to change one of them, but I feel like... I mean, I've got plenty of money too. You've got 13.8 mil left to spend in that team. You could probably get in an Alpine instead of a Bottas, or certainly than a De Vries. Yeah, I think about, I'm thinking about kicking out De Vries. Mm. Certainly something to look forward to as we move towards the first of two Italian Grand Prix this year, the uh, Formula One Grand Premio del Made in Italy de, de, delle Emilia Romagna 2023. You've got 11 days, 17 hours and 33 minutes at the time of recording to get your team straight for that. So... We'll wait and see what happens then. In the meantime, though, that is all we've got time for on this week's podcast. Timo, if he's ever released from prison or back from international espionage or wherever he is, uh, can be found on Is It Fast on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Paddock Sorority, and Instagram. Ellie May, where can you be found? You, I can be found uh, co running the Instagram account and the TikTok account for this podcast. Excellent. And if you want more of me in the meantime, you can find me across Instagram and Twitter as at Jesse on Cars. You can also find the podcast on Twitter and uh, you can also find me on uh, writing for Classic Car Weekly. where I've got all sorts of interesting things coming up through this month and certainly the start of June as well. It's a busy old time, both podcast wise and CCW wise. And I'm still hoping to try and get back on that YouTube horse and make some video content for you all there. But Again, I've got a triple header of podcasts to record. That could be a busy time. <laughs> Until then, thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with a preview for the um, Emilia Romagna Grand Prix. I was about to say um, the San Marino Grand Prix, but it's not called San Marino anymore, is it? Wait, it's just Imola, isn't it? It's, it's Imola. We'll be back for Imola. Thank you very much. Bye.